Welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill. This is episode 83. Thanks for listening. Perhaps I should say thanks for taking a break from hunting food just to survive and fighting off the hordes of mutants who have you cowering in your underground caves where human civilization has retreated now that the world has ended after the Great Eclipse of 2017. This episode is being recorded the day before the eclipse, and what I'm assuming is the last day of humanity. So be safe out there. Make sure you have your scientifically approved eclipse glasses, and you know it doesn't really matter, because when that moon moves in front of that sun, it's all over. You think Trump was a problem? That moon's going to end the world. So... I applaud you for finding the recording of this podcast in the wreckage of our technology, which proves useless. You thought Y2K was scary? Kids, go ask your parents. That was nothing. That was like a warm-up. The computers were laughing at us then. Sure, we can't turn over another digit on our calendars. Just kidding. Yes, we can. But the moon moving in front of the sun? No, we can't handle that. It's kind of like how, for some reason, when it rains, our internet connection goes funky. I don't understand it. It's just how technology works. Alright, so stay safe everybody. There was some sad news this week. Well, let's be honest. There was lots of sad news this week. But the one that I was going to mention was there was a great shakeup in personnel at a certain famous location this week. High level staffers being removed in a sign of the changing times. No, no, not Steve Bannon leaving the White House. We're talking, of course, about Chuck E. Cheese is making a change. The world-class number one recording artist, the Chuck E. Cheese animatronic band, which I assume has a name, but I don't know what it is, is being phased out. As the opening line of this article on the AV Club says, Depriving future children of years' worth of nightmares about dead-eyed animatronics trying to play the blues... Pitchfork reports that Chuck E. Cheese is phasing out its robot bands in a number of select locations with an eye toward ending the program entirely in favor of live performers. Well, let me just say, on behalf of all us middle-aged dudes who went to Chuck E. Cheese as a kid, boo! Now, I will clarify that by saying I really didn't go to Chuck E. Cheese as a kid. I went to Showbiz Pizza. There wasn't really a Chuck E. Cheese around where I lived. There was a Showbiz Pizza within a couple of hours. Just run up to Minnesota to see my brother, and we could go to check or uh, Showbiz Pizza. Essentially the same thing. The band far superior, in my opinion. But you know that's just me. Of course, Showbiz Pizza died out a long time ago. There was a big ugly dispute between Chuck E. Cheese and Showbiz Pizza over who had the brilliant idea to make robot animals play music first. Showbiz Pizza ultimately lost, of course. Chuck E. Cheese is still around. There's a Chuck E. Cheese in my town where I live now, the the kids have gone there a few times. Let's just say Chuck E. Cheese isn't what it once used to be. Uh, And so now they're trying to shake things up a little bit. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just reading this article and it's making me chuckle. So they have these quotes here from uh, Chuck E. Cheese, you know, corporate, saying, you know, we gotta make some changes, the kids aren't looking at the animatronics anymore, and they want the live Chuck E., which you really have to enunciate correctly, because you say if you say the live Chucky, you're bound to think of the creepy doll from all those horror movies. And that doesn't seem like an experience for the whole family. But if you say it correctly, Chuck E. Cheese, 
then you got it. So this article says, And rather than take the natural course of action, i.e. fix the damn children, in whatever way it takes to refill them with wonder at the sight of a bunch of spastically jerking robot musicians toiling away for their amusement, the company has decided to get rid of the bots in favor of some poor schlubs in mascot costumes. So, you know what? We're providing employment opportunities for teenagers. I don't have teenage children. I'm still a youthful 25 <clears throat> in my dreams. But I do have kids who will be teenagers and you know, sooner than I'd like to admit. And uh, I like the idea of more employment opportunities for them. So, I don't know how you guys feel about Chuck E. Cheese, if Chuck E. Cheese was really a place that you went to a lot. If you're listening to a video game podcast, which you are, if you listen to this show, although I think Atari Bytes is video games and so much more, you probably visited a Chuck E. Cheese uh, a time or two, and you may still, especially if you have kids. So, I don't know, maybe this is a good move. I guess I kind of want to know what the live performers are going to be like. If it really is just going to be a mopey teenager wearing a giant bobblehead kind of thing on his head and just start standing there, no thanks. But we'll see. So, rest in peace, animatronic Chuck E. Cheese band. What else is going on? I thought this was encouraging, especially in light of recent news of yet uh, again sort of swirling tensions between various groups, uh, various minority groups, and uh, and other groups that maybe don't agree with them so much about their ideas. This was encouraging news. Atari has partnered, according to Engadget, with a company called LGBT Media, which produces apps like LGBTQT, um, and they're going to relaunch Atari's city-building game, Pride Fest. I know nothing actually about Pride Fest, so I'm sort of uh, in the dark here a little bit as far as what that game is. This article is short on details as far as what exactly is going to be this, the result of this partnership. The article just sort of flat out says, nobody quite knows what's going to happen, but Atari is uh, making a specific point of trying to address the LGBTQ audience um, in its games. Uh, of course, games have always had an issue with things like uh, featuring male characters almost exclusively, and when they did have women characters, maybe not treating them quite as equally, uh, to put it mildly. You know, characters of color, that sort of thing. And certainly the LGBTQ community probably has a complaint there as well. And I like the idea of, as part of Atari's sort of overall uh, bid to make itself relevant in the 21st century, it's thinking about issues like inclusivity and making sure that everyone has, has a seat at the table uh, in front of the game console. So, good on you, Atari and LGBT media. I will be curious to see what comes of this. Meanwhile, over at Atari's legal department, there are legal problems. Atari is suing the company Nestle, which makes the Kit Kat bar. They are accusing Nestle of copying Breakout, legendary Atari game, obviously, in a marketing campaign. This is reported by BBC News. There's an advertisement showing a game similar to Breakout, only that instead of bricks, there are Kit Kat bars. In this article, Nestle says it's aware of the lawsuit and will defend itself strongly against the allegations. The advertisement actually is titled Kit Kat Breakout, and in it, a row of people of different ages and appearance are sitting on a couch playing video games during a work break, and the game that they're playing is it uh, features a primitive paddle moving side to side to bounce a ball into a collision with the horizontal bars ranged across the top of the screen. Atari says, hey, 
that looks an awful lot like Breakout. And Nestle said, nah, they say it with more legalese, but essentially they're saying, nah, does not. The legal complaint filed against Nestle, filed in San Francisco court. Uh, okay, I was kind of wondering, since this was BBC News reporting, if this was uh, you know, a British thing or if this was America. But they filed it in uh, San Francisco court, although that might actually be because that's where Nestle is headquartered. Although they refer to the company as a Swiss chocolate maker. I don't know. So the complaint says that Nestle was trying to exploit the special place breakout holds among nostalgic baby boomers Generation X. Hey, that's me. And even today's millennial and post-millennial gamers. Nestle says, on the other hand, this is a UK... Okay. So they are suing in, in the US, I'm guessing, because that's where Nestle is headquartered. But it, this was an advertisement that ran in the UK. In 2016, the ad no longer runs, and we have no current plans to rerun it. We're aware of the lawsuit in the US, and we'll defend ourselves strongly against these allegations. So, I don't know. I'd say if you're copying, you should have gotten permission first. However, I also say that... Uh, or in addition, I also say that, uh, you know, go get them because I've hated Kit Kat bars ever since those stupid commercials where the whole commercial is just the sound of a crunching Kit Kat bar and there's no, not really any dialogue or anything. It's just that stupid sound and for the whole 30 seconds or however long the spot is. I get that the sound is supposed to make you, you know, sort of have a Pavlovian response and start drooling because you suddenly want a Kit Kat bar. That noise, however, doesn't do that for me. Just playing it over and over like that really just makes me want to punch somebody. And I'm not a violent person. So uh, I have no problem with uh, Nestle being sued over this. Go get him, Atari. That's what I say. All right, at this point in the news segment, I announced that I am moving to Missouri. And here's why. Somebody has built in Branson, Missouri, because why not, a four-story Super Mario Kart track. It's a 1,440-foot track. Okay, actually, it's not new, I guess. It was built in 2002. Features a full spiral down four stories, two mini spirals, branching paths, and a blind peak. All wooden construction. For 10 bucks per rider, you can experience this thing. And they're getting ready to expand it, apparently. They're going to build an even larger multi-story track in Niagara. Oh, okay, they're not expanding the one in Branson. They're building another one in Niagara that's going to be even bigger. It will be the largest structure of its kind in North America and will feature an even larger elevated corkscrew and elevated raceways. So, it look, okay, it looks like a go-kart thing. Yeah, okay, I get it now. I'm an Atari guy, of course. I, I host an Atari podcast. But I have Mario Kart on the Wii, which I haven't played in years because the Wii that I own went kind of funky. But it was one of the, the my favorite home gaming experiences. I really liked playing Mario Kart. My kids liked it, too. It's just a really fun game. Uh, I am not typically a go-kart guy, but we may have to make a trip to Branson to uh, check this out. If any of you have been on the Mario Kart track in Branson, Missouri, let me know. Okay, and I think that is all the news that is fit to talk about. There was lots of depressing news this week, too, uh, in the world, but we don't want depressing on this show. We want games. So, without further ado, let's move on to this week's game. This week's game is... Long ago, in the distant future, where evil knights joust upon beasts of the air, you too must fly, joust, and retrieve the enemy's egg before it hatches, and beware the lava below. You can experience this world from the other side. It's called Joust, the arcade game, home now only from Atari, a video game park. 
play Joust. You don't play it. You live it. Joust from Williams, 1982. The manual opens up with an exclamation point. Knights on birdback. How on earth did you fall into this bizarre world? Look around you. The sky is filled with knights astride enormous armored buzzards. These characters look mean, and the buzzards they ride don't look very friendly either. The objective of joust is to defend yourself and score points by unseating opponents in a joust. The winner of a joust is the rider whose mount is highest at the moment of contact. If the mounts are of equal height, the joust is a draw. Your opponents are the buzzard riders. There are three types, each more dangerous than the last. The bounders, wearing red. The hunters, wearing gray. And the shadow lords, wearing blue. I don't know if I mentioned this in the field report or not. I never got to the point where I saw anything other than the gray ones. I'm not sure why that is. When you unseat a buzzard rider in a joust, he and his mount turn into an egg and float ominously around the jousting arena. If you grab the egg, it will disappear and you'll score bonus points. If you don't grab the egg, it will eventually hatch into an even more dangerous opponent. When you lose a joust, you'll materialize again at the bottom ledge, if you have any lives remaining. Until you fully materialize, you're protected from attack. Once your bird is moved, however, you become fair game for a joust. I lost a crapload of guys, like, immediately upon arriving on the screen, for this very reason. Fire pits are positioned on both sides of the lower ledge. Uh, no, okay. Actually, what you see on the screen is just sort of a, you know, black border on either side of the ledge. There's no fire on the screen. After the second wave of gameplay, the pits are uncovered and any jouster who ventures too close may fall into the deadly lava. At certain times during the game, another menace, the pterodactyl, appears. The pterodactyl will try to eat you, but if you hit it directly on its beak, you'll destroy it and earn bonus points. Okay. The little bit of experience I had with the pterodactyl this morning, I couldn't figure out how to destroy it. Uh, I guess I know now. It's kind of the opposite of pitfall, where if you touch the, uh, not the beak, but the, the snout part of the crocodiles, you get eaten. But in this game, that's what you gotta do. When all buzzard riders have been unseated, a new wave of gameplay begins. The wave number is shown between rounds at the bottom of the screen. In some waves, you can earn bonus points. These waves are Survival Wave, 1 player, or Team Wave, 2 player. In the 1 player version, you are awarded 3,000 points if your player stays alive through the entire wave. In the 2 player version, both players are awarded 3,000 points if neither player unseats the other. Gladiator Wave, 2 player. The first player to unseat the other player is awarded 3,000 points. Egg Wave, all the buzzard riders begin this wave as eggs. Collect the eggs quickly before they hatch. The Pterodactyl Wave. The pterodactyl appears immediately on screen in this wave. The upcoming wave is shown by a letter that appears at the lower right side of the screen. Oh, okay. That explains my confusion in the field report why there was an S at the bottom of the screen. Because it was telling me that the survival team wave is coming up. G for gladiator, E for egg, P for pterodactyl. Each player's current score and the number of lives left is shown at the bottom of the screen. You start the game with 5 lives and earn an additional life with every 20,000 points earned. I was not in danger of getting an additional life when I was playing. Point values look like they range basically from 50 points for losing a life. I don't get that. Consolation prize, maybe. All the way up to 1,000 points, or excuse me, 1,500 points for getting a Shadow Lord. Uh, okay, and 2,000 points for unseating another player in a two-player game. 3,000 points for surviving a survival wave, cooperating in a team wave, unseating another player in a gladiator wave. We're using the left uh, controller jack with a joystick for this one. Hold the controller with the red fire button to your upper left toward the television screen. It never hurts to be reminded of that. Use your joystick to turn your bird right or left. Use the red controller button to make your bird flap its wings. To make your bird fly, press the red button repeatedly. Flying is hard. 
the control is hard on this one, getting your bird to fly up. And, you know, where direction isn't so bad, but getting it to fly up is kind of hard. The best part is when you try to stop the direction that you're going, and he just kind of slams on the brakes and makes this Looney Tune style sort of screeching noise. Uh, it amuses me. There are two game variations in Joust, easy and skilled. Easy game variations are identified by a teddy bear symbol next to the score. Perhaps the decapitated head of Bugsby Bear, or Bigsley Bear. What's that dude from uh, Crystal Cave named? I don't know, but it might be him. In easy game variations, you face only one opponent at a time, and the hunters, shadow lords, and pterodactyls do not appear. Helpful hints. Play the easy version first to learn how to control your bird. Try keeping your flight steady and even rather than bouncing off ledges. Learn the flight patterns of the buzzard riders. Try to predict when an area would be avoided, should be avoided, or where to expect the next rider. Clear the screen of opponents as soon as you can, which sounds an awful lot to me like any time they interview any sort of sports player on the news, and the answer is always the same. They won because they scored more points, or if we want to win, we need to score more points. The answer is always some variation on that. Clear the screen of opponents as soon as you can. If it is too much time, if too much time passes, the pterodactyl will appear. Collect eggs quickly. If you wait too long, they'll hatch into new buzzard riders. Stay away from the sides of the jousting area, uh, jousting arena, since a buzzard rider or pterodactyl could appear unexpectedly. And then the manual ends by telling us that Atari welcomes our comments. All right, and that's what I'm going to do on the show: is offer some comments. Joust, of course, started its life as an arcade game developed by Williams Electronics in 1982. Wikipedia says that it is not the first game to feature two-player cooperative play, but it was the most it was more successful than its predecessors and popularized the concept. They actually refer to the bird that you're flying as a as an ostrich. Uh, the manual of course said buzzard. It does to be honest, on string look a little bit more like an ostrich. John Newcomer led the development team, which included Bill Futzenreuter, Jan Hendricks, Python Angelo, Tim Murphy, and John Cotlaret. Newcomer aimed to create a flying game with cooperative two-player gameplay, but wanted to avoid a space theme, which was popular at the time. The game was well-received in, ar- in arcades and by critics, and Joust was followed by a sequel four years later. It's been adapted for many platforms. Apple II, Atari 2600, 5200, and 7800, Atari 8-bit, Lynx, Atari ST, IBM PC, Macintosh, NES, on and on and on and on. In 1996, Next Generation listed the arcade version as number 83 on their top 100 games of all time, citing as a perfect example of the three ingredients that all too often make a classic. Original concepts, quirky designs, and above all, playability. Kevin Bowen of GameSpy's Classic Gaming wrote that despite a concept he described as incredibly stupid, Joust is an appealing game with good controls and cooperative gameplay. Retro gamer writer Mike Bevan praised the game's physics, calling them beautifully realized, and described Joust as one of Williams' most remarkable and well-loved titles. Computer and video games writer, a writer for computer and video games, called the game weird and wonderful. A Joust-themed pinball table was released in 1983. An arcade sequel, Joust 2 Survival of the Fittest, was released in 86, with similar gameplay. Other remakes were in development, but never released. Previously unreleased Atari Soft prototypes of Joust for the ColecoVision surfaced in 2001 at the Classic Gaming Expo in Las Vegas. An adaptation with three-dimensional graphics and a port of the original Joust as a bonus was in development for the Atari Jaguar CD titled Dactyl Joust. It was eventually canceled. Newcomer pitched an updated version for the Game Boy Advance to Midway Games, but they didn't sanction it. Midway Games optioned Joust's movie rights to CP Productions in 2007. Michael Surenzi and Christine Peters of CP Productions planned to expand on a game element for the film's premise. 
Serenzi described the script by Mark Gottlieb as Gladiator meets Mad Max, set 25 years in the future, and Peters commented that the action-oriented film would appeal to a general audience. It was planned as a tentpole movie with a graphic novel by Stephen Elliott Altman as part of the media franchise's release. Midway also considered a video game ad- adaptation of the film. Joust's expected release date was set in June 2008 and then later pushed back to 2009. However, the video game company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2009. Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment purchased most of Midway's assets, including Joust, with the intent to develop movie adaptations. And yet, we're still waiting for it. Hey, there's another movie that I could write. Give me a call, Warner Brothers. Let's talk. 8-Bit Central opens its review by saying, If you've ever been to a Renaissance fair, you have to admit jousting on an ostrich is far more fun, especially if it's a flying ostrich. They refer to this game, Joust, as an arcade gem, born of a time where common sense was hardly a requisite for game premise. And they think it's actually it's fun in its, on its own, and even better as a two-player affair. Sifting through the Joust manual, there is no mention of any ostriches. They are ostriches, right? Long neck, round feathered body, and long gangly legs. What else could they be? And he wonders if they refer to them as buzzards in the manual because maybe someone has a trademark on ostriches or something. Their final judgment is that Atari Joust is somewhat scarce on graphics, which I would agree with, but the gameplay brings back the arcade challenge. Inclusion of the two-player do-op mode makes this a really fun game for two. They're probably right. I have not yet tried this with two. Maybe I'll make Henry play it with me later today because I could see the appeal of that, definitely. So we've been throwing around the name of this game, Joust, if you weren't paying attention, and sort of talking about the, the video game, but what is jousting? Well, I'll tell you. A joust is defined as a fight between mounted knights wearing armor and using lances. Jousting was a favorite form of entertainment during the Middle Ages. Jousting took place at medieval tournaments, which provide a venue for knights to practice various forms of combat to the delight and for the amusement of crowds of onlookers. There are two types of jousting events during the Middle Ages. The Joust of Plaisance and the Pas de Armes. The first one, Joust de Plaisance, uh, features a series of elimination jousting contests which were held over several days. An overall jousting winner would be determined. And then we're assuming the opponent was killed. I don't know that, but that's just my assumption. The Pas de Armes, or Passage of Arms Jousting. In this one, a knight would send out a proclamation that he would take on all challengers of a joust at a specific time and place. This is kind of like the medieval version of, come at me, bro. Jousting goes back a long ways. The Mongols did it. The gladiatorial contests fought in the arenas built across Europe were banned in 404 AD, but the battles fought in the arenas were remembered and changed into games to enable soldiers to practice skills which did not culminate in the death or injury of participants. The tournaments of the Middle Ages replaced the gladiatorial games of the Roman arena, but were far less, with far less fatalities and bloodshed, and far more finesse. The code of chivalry practiced by the knights was an important element of the tournament of jousting. The word joust is derived from the Roman juxtare, which means to meet together. The knights represented their liege lord or were entering the tournament in order to win the purse or prize money. In early tournaments, the losing knights would forfeit his armor and his horse, which would be claimed by the victor. Fame and glory were also good reasons for the knights to enter a tournament. Coincidentally, fame and glory is also why we do this podcast. So let's get to it. After the break, it's a bird joust. Mighty, mighty. Gonna let it all joust out. Welcome to Medieval Space Times. There were no horses in Medieval Space Times, 
so there are no horses at medieval space times. I'm trying to decide what I think about Joust. Um, I remember playing it in the arcade, and it had a very distinctive look. It was a very interesting game. The Satari version? I don't know. I find it weirdly compelling. I'm really bad at it. But I want to keep playing. It, it bears only a passing resemblance to the arcade version. But it looks like it's, it, it, it's distinctive looking. I've already lost four guys. I'm not good at this game talking over it or not talking over it. Um, I don't really see the lava that's supposed to be there at the bottom of the screen. There's that pterodactyl thing, I guess. The whole... You joust by touching your opponent, but if you're not higher than them when you touch them, you lose your life is frustrating. Okay, now there's a little S at the bottom of the screen. What's going on there? Okay, I just jumped levels, I guess. Somehow. Even though I did really bad at the first level. Alright, I just started the game over, because I burned through my lives. Um... Yeah, I mean, the graphics are basic. It's early 80s graphics. But, like I said, it's just weirdly compelling. These... You know, the, your little dude riding your ostrich, or whatever that's supposed to be, a buzzard, I guess. And the creepy-looking gray villains. I know the Death Eaters in Harry Potter are black, but I keep thinking of Death Eaters when I see the, the gray... Uh, flying creatures, which has nothing to do with anything, but that's what I think of. Ah! Come here, egg! Oh! There's my... I don't know if that picked up on the microphone or not, but my favorite part of this game is when you slam on the brakes. You go in one direction, suddenly you want to go the other way. That weird little brake squealing noise that he makes. It just makes me happy. It's like a Looney Tune cartoon. I kind of have Looney Tunes on the brain. I watched uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit with the kids last night. I think Henry liked it. Sophie maybe not so much. Slammed on the brakes again. That's my favorite part of this game. And that's it. Wow, a whole 3,200 points. I made it to 5,000 points before I started recording. Does that get me into the record books? I don't know. Somebody look that up for me. In the meantime, back to you in the studio. Here's the thing about Joust. I like this game a lot. I think I mentioned in the field report. I played this game a little bit in the arcade. The Atari version doesn't look much like it but it is a weirdly compelling game. It's one that I'll keep playing, even though I'm not particularly good at it, and it doesn't necessarily look the greatest. It does look interesting, and it does have interesting gameplay to it. So I will keep playing this one, which I guess is really all the maker of a game wants, right? That there's something about that makes you come back and play some more. So Joust succeeds in that regard. We read all that stuff about, uh, we heard all that stuff about medieval times, and jousting and all of that how do we get from that to this 
thing with the flying ostriches that aren't ostriches and fire pits and stuff. Well, it's clear what happened. It's all King Arthur's fault. It's all King Arthur's fault. Galahad grasps the handle of a flagon of mead in his massive fist and bangs it soundly on the wooden table. Hear ye, hear ye, he bellows. The meeting of the social committee of the round table shall come to order. Ever since the Knights of Camelot had secured their borders with that wall the French Huguenots paid for from centuries in the future, they had very little to do. After a particularly rousing backgammon and witch-dunking game night, King Arthur saw the potential for his knights to pump a little life into the old gray walls of Camelot. Galahad got to be the head of the committee by virtue of the fact that he had stepped out to pick up the barley oat takeout, so he was volunteered. Had he not waited for the extra side order of barley, he would have been back before voting, and Gawain would have gotten stuck with the job. So did anyone do anything new and fun this week? Galahad asked. I slayed that dragon yesterday, Gawain said. We've all slayed a dragon, Lancelot said, braiding his beard. It's not even a challenge anymore. Gawain pouted a little. Well, it was a pretty big dragon. Of course it was, Sir Gareth said. Have a cookie, Gawain. I don't want a cookie. Yes, you do. Gareth slid the tray closer to Gawain, who gave a little smile, despite himself, and snatched the barley chip baked good. Galahad's massive fist shook the round table and the knights jumped. Once the clattering of armor shuddered to a stop, he continued, Look, we've got a problem. Viewing figures for our royal jousts are down. Minstrel Idol and Camelot's Got Jesters is kicking our butts. Bachelor Mummer is pretty good too, Sir Tristan said. The Lady in the Lake spent last week using the sword and the stone to cut out pictures of him. We need to get more ye olde buttocks in ye olde seats, Galahad said. The door of the conference room banged open. A bloodshot, wide-eyed Merlin shuffled in, drips of old-timey Starbucks espresso staining the hem of his wizard robe. He licked a few more drops from his palm and tossed the empty cup into the garbage in the streets out the window, conveniently located next to the potable water. I have the answer, he declared. Go away, Galahad said. We're not going to pick a card again or pull your finger, a still pouty Gawain said through a mouthful of barley. Not falling for that again, Lancelot chuckled. I'm pretty sure the only answer you've heard is Guinevere telling you she's not interested. No, Merlin said. That's not true. His pointy hat dripped sadly before springing back into place as he remembered what he came in here to tell them. Do you know why people are bored with jousting? Not enough beheadings, grunts Sir Lamarck from a weirdly existing corner of the round table. No one is entirely sure why Sir Lamarck was allowed to be on the social committee, but everyone was scared to tell him he couldn't be. No sarcastic pants, Merlin said. Everyone paused a moment to really, really hope that Lamarck was indeed kidding. The problem with the jousts is the setting. The royal courtyard is the finest place in all of Camelot, Galahad objected. The... We toss out of our windows doesn't stink as much as anyone else's, Tristan added, releasing ye olde flatulence. Gentlemen, Merlin said, what if I told you I could transport those matches to the heavenly fields of play among the stars? Okay, look, let me break this down for you, Merlin says. I built a really big space catapult, and I can launch the knights into space. The shillings were pouring from telescope rental to watch the excitement. Everyone was confused. Ye olde WTF? Lancelot commented. Come, Merlin said. My huge catapult is outside. Naturally, Gawain said. Yes, well, Merlin said. If we're going to launch horses into space, I'm going to need the strongest arms in the kingdom. Guinevere's away today, Tristan said. Well, you'll have to do then, 
Okay, here's the thing. The Knights of the Round Table were brave and chivalrous and powerful. Merlin was a wise and mysterious magician. But it did not occur to any of them that if you launch a horse off a catapult into space, it'll barf. Then either crash to earth and die or explode in the vacuum of space. Well, after yet another horse plummeted to a gooey mess on the courtyard, Merlin groaned. Well... The knights quickly realized they needed a different animal. They tried llamas, ostriches, and woolly mammoths. For a whole Tuesday afternoon, Camelot was awash in Lannister levels of blood. As Gawain hosed down the back patio, Tristan came out pushing a wheelbarrow full of bits of chainmail and helmets. Hey guys, we've got all this customized buzzard armor left over from Bring Your Pet to Work Day. Why don't we try buzzards? And the rest is a poorly recorded history. Except for the pterodactyl, which is absolutely a real, still existing thing. Just ask the late Sir Bedivere. Parts of him are buried around the kingdom. For good measure, they set the floor of the new space-based jousting arena on fire, because everybody loves a good fire. The gambit paid off. The jousting matches were more popular than the time Arthur pulled the sword from the stone. Hey, nani nani indeed. And that's our show. My thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Pinball Spring, and Take a Chance. Show notes can be found at AtariBytes.Libson.com, along with more episodes and links to social media and all that other stuff. Email the show at AtariBytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at AtariBytes. And... In a bold leap into 2010, Atari Bytes is now on Instagram. Follow me there, too. We'll see how this goes. In the meantime, you can also find Atari Bytes episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, all the other usual places. Please aim your review, Lance, confidently to topple the iTunes writer and leave a show review. And then, go out and tap your friends on the shoulder with that Lance and tell them to listen to the show. You can also support the show financially on our Patreon page or by picking up Atari Bytes merchandise at Zazzle.com. Links to all of that in the show notes. And, as time permits, please do check out my other show, It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown, for all your Snoopy-related Peanuts needs. There's 50 years of original Peanuts material and the indelible mark of the Peanuts gang on the world is indelible. I promise you the commentary is more articulate than that on the show, so do check it out. New episodes drop on the 15th of every month. Next time on Atari Bytes, Solaris. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.